stress the importance of forgiveness. So let's start with Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is a great one. Clear. Can't misunderstand. And it includes a lot of very important, very meaty, very heavy ideas. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So there's a whole disposition. All those words are different, but they're all from a sort of a similar mindset and heart condition. It says all those things to be put away with, done away with. And then verse 32. And be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Without comment, let's keep going. Go to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12. Similar, but different. Colossians 3, 12, the Bible says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let's go back to the book of Matthew. Two passages I want you to see here in Matthew, starting in Matthew 9. Considering the one who has the power to forgive, this might seem an unusual passage to read in this context, but I think it'll make sense, especially in light of other things we'll say uh, throughout the night. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 1, it says, Getting into a boat, he, that is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know, and this is the reason I'm reading this passage because I want to emphasize this, so that you may know, because all too often we have problems forgiving ourselves, problems feeling forgiven. If we recognize the promise and the love and the power of Jesus, we can know. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. He got up, he rose up, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. So they were blown away by the power of this Jesus to make the lame walk. But what we need to be even more impressed by, what we need to take from this and be thankful for and live in light of even this minute tonight, is that the same one who had the power to tell someone to stand up and walk is the same one who has the power to say, you are forgiven, and it's so. Period. <laughs> okay, go over to chapter 18. Chapter 18, there's a long passage here. Uh, let's just go ahead and read it. Nothing better than 
the Word of God. Matthew 18, verse 21, it says that Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I'm to forgive him? As many as seven times. And no matter what your background in Jewish history is and Jewish customs, you need to just know this little tidbit. Peter thought he was being way over the top. Peter thought he was being a very symbol of, an example of, just the picture of the forgiver. Should I forgive someone even as up to seven times? And Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but depending upon the translation you have, 77 times. And I think that this is the case. Here's the way we need to understand this. Jesus says this. Instead of getting out your pad and counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, keeping track, he says, you should be the kind of person that just forgives. A number that's, that's so big that you just stop counting. That I don't finally go, well, now, Roger, I'm up to six. You better be careful. Don't cross me one more time, buddy. I'm, that seven will be it. Right? He says, don't count. Don't have seven. 77 times. Seven times seven. 77 times seven. Right? Just this big number. Because it is not to be counted. And so he says, let me tell you this story. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. Here's all you need to know about that. That's an astronomical number. Depending upon the scholar you look at, the numbers are going to, they're going to vary. Okay, some will say it means this much. Some will say it means this much. All you need to know is it's more than this guy could repay. Because he's going to say this. Since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment be made. And so that servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. What you're to see there in verse 26 is, that is a lie. He can't pay back the number he owes. He owes so much that multiple lifetimes wouldn't allow him to pay it back. And so if he just says, look, just give me a little more time. I'll go work a double shift you're not going to earn enough money to pay him back. You're not. But verse 27 says this, but out of pity, the master of that servant released him, forgave him of the debt. Then that very one, that same servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's, that's not something just to sneeze at. That's not nothing. A hundred denarii is something. Again, depending upon the scholar you look at, it'll vary a little bit. Conservative would be this. It's a few weeks' worth of wages. Okay? Not something would, I wouldn't want to give up a few weeks' worth of wages, but a few weeks' worth of wages is doable. This one's doable. The other one wasn't. And he was forgiven. Boom. This one, he owes him a few hundred denarii, and he seizes him. The guy who's just been forgiven seizes this other one and he begins to choke him and says, pay what you owe. His fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. This one actually can be paid back. If you'll be patient, I can pay you back. We can set up a schedule. And on this one, they really could. He says, be patient, I'll pay you back. Verse 30 says, he refused. He went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
And his master summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Remember the passages we read in Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13? Forgive because you've been forgiven. 34. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay the debt. And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, with all of those biblical passages as sort of as as foundation and background for for thinking about this. I want to read, share a couple of statements with you. Uh, I think this is credited to Nelson Mandela for being the one that that said this and made it famous because, you know, he was in in prison and when he was asked, hey, uh, you're finally being released. How do you feel towards those who put you here? And he said this, resentment is like swallowing a poison and then waiting for your enemy to die. That's how logical it is to be someone who holds on, to be someone who refuses to to forgive and who refuses to to let go and just keeps on holding a grudge. He said, resentment's like you taking the poison and then expecting your enemy to pass away. That's not the way it works, right? If I take the poison, who's going to die? Me. And then there's even this. I thought this was interesting that uh, some scientists have, have found that resentment and holding on to resentment for extended periods of time, increases stress, and that increases harmful chemicals in the body, particularly in the brain. It affects our ability to problem solve. So resentment can keep you from being a clear thinker and a problem solver. It can make you more depressed. But then on the other hand, they found that forgiveness reduces depression, reduces anxiety, lowers blood pressure, all these wonderful things. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Shirley would want to say anything about that, but that's one article that I read that they said that these are things that they're finding, that holding on this resentment actually changes the chemical structure of things and causes problems, even cardiac problems. Yeah, okay, see? Yeah, so even Dr. Shirley says that's right. So I think that's great. I don't know why you're laughing at that. Uh, my point is, it doesn't make sense. Scripture says, here's the way to be. Medicine says, here's the way to be. Why would we continue banging our head against the wall and doing physical damage and spiritual damage to ourselves when this is what's true? So, if we're seeking to instill and create and raise up a generation that is a generation of forgivers, here's where I want to start, okay? A million other places to start, but here's where I want to start. And maybe this is, you know, showing my own insecurities, or maybe it's because I'm a father of three boys, whatever it might be. I want to create and raise people of power. I want to raise strong people. It doesn't have to mean physically strong, but I want to raise strong kids. And so it has to be understood that the ability to forgive comes from a place of strength, not weakness. The ability to forgive comes from a place of strength, not weakness. We live in a world where everybody's a victim. Uh, 
making even the wrong statement causes harm. I mean, the word harm has been so butchered and doesn't make any sense anymore. But we live in a time where everybody's a victim and certain words are meaningless and others are blamed. It's always everyone, you know, everyone else's fault, everyone else's fault. There's no ownership. But powerful and strong people admit when they are wrong and they seek to make amends. No excuses, no blaming others. Um, an admission, I messed up and I need help. That's from a place of strength, not weakness. Uh, Gandhi even once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. I think there's something to that. Because in these passages here, like in Matthew 18, who is it that's in the ultimate position of strength in Matthew 18 in the parable that we read? The king, right? He has the power to kill or give life. He's the one in the position of power. And the first thing we see him do, the way we're introduced to him, is he cancels an unpayable debt. Because he's strong, not because he's weak. Uh, look at verse 18, verse 27. Chapter 18, verse 27 of Matthew there. It says, Out of pity for this individual, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. That is a demonstration of strength, and that needs to be emphasized. Forgiveness comes from a place of strength, not weakness. I'm going to keep saying it. Because now notice this, that when Jesus would open up the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. Now, it didn't say blessed are the weak. But he says those who will be blessed by God are the meek. Those who, you can be as strong as you want to be, but it's power under control is the best way I've ever heard it described. The ancient Greeks used to describe their work animals like this. You take a big, powerful animal like a horse or whatever it might be, and you put that powerful beast under your control with the bridle and the bit, and you make them work for you. That was the same kind of idea here of this meekness, that it's power under control. I could squash you, but when I choose not to, I'm displaying strength. When I choose to give you a second chance, I'm displaying strength. And then there's even this, Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who will be called sons of God, those who will be welcomed into the family of God, are not those who squash everyone in their way, but those who make peace, build bridges, cause restoration. Uh, so, in my way of thinking, that's the first place I want to think, and that's the first thing I want to establish, is that not only is this right, not only is this good, but this is powerful. You ever been forgiven? You ever know that you were just wrong and somebody forgave you? Do you not feel like they made a very real difference in your life? They displayed something to you that was liberating and powerful. I hope you didn't walk away from a, a situation where you were forgiven and think, what a weakling. If I'd been in that spot, I'd have crushed me. Okay, let me pause and ask for questions, feedback, comments. I've gone for a long time. You know, I think 
Yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's good. I like that. Because one of the things that makes me think of when you're in, um, in your response there is part of it is the response of David, the psalmist of saying, create in me a clean heart, O God. Um, and so there's, there's the, as you said, there's the desire to be like, you know, Lord, give them what for? Or Lord, fix them. What about Lord, fix me? And Lord, help me. Uh, and help me to see this as I should, as you do, and, and help me to forgive them in a way that you would. Those kinds of things. Uh, so I appreciate that. I love that answer. Mark. Is there what? You said they're forgiving others what? Okay, I don't think I'm hearing what you're saying. because I. Oh, is it optional? Thank you. Is that what you said? Man, just tell everything to Scott and he'll relay it to me, okay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All kinds of things going bad. So, yeah, I don't think there's any way to see uh, the concept of being a forgiver as being optional. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get to this. I think there's a lot of things we can say, but we're running out of time. Let me get to this because I want to get back to what. Oh, Jackie, yes, sir. Okay, meaning the difference between uh, a heart of forgiveness and a situation of consequences, maybe. Uh, I think the best illustration is, of course, Jesus, right? Um, in uh, Luke's gospel, he mentions the fact that from the cross, remember, we all know this, there's seven sayings of the cross, right? One of those that Jesus says from the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So his heart his disposition, his willingness, his dream, his goal was forgiveness. His prayer was forgiveness. And there's some discussion um, about just when and how often that that was said. You know, I think the image that we often have is just Jesus hanging there on the cross and then from the cross says it. Um, but there's, there's every possibility that as the nails were being driven into his hands and feet, he was saying it. And that hours later, as he hung there from the cross, that he was still saying it. His desire, his prayer, was their forgiveness. But of the crowd, 
who, or let me not say who, when were they forgiven? At the earliest, the things we read about, that seems to be the case, maybe Acts chapter 2. Where in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to a crowd of thousands, some of whom most likely were there in that crowd that were wagging their heads and shaking their fists at Jesus. And Peter says to them, you have crucified the Savior. And he says a number of other things, but they finally come to realize that they're wrong. They, come there and they stand in place to be condemned. And so it says in Acts 2.37, their hearts were cut wide open and they asked, what do we do? And so in Acts 2.38, the response was the answer. The divine answer was, repent and be immersed. And what? You'll be forgiven and given the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so I think Jesus' prayer from the cross was answered in Acts 2. Now, they had to make changes, right? They had to go from being those that said, die, you liar, to what do I do? I'm hopeless without him. What does he ask me to do? So there had to be a change. Just like in Luke chapter 15. I'm telling you, even though the text doesn't say it, and the, the father is a fictional, you know, it's a parable character anyway, but the father in Luke 15, I'm telling you, he's one that has forgiven his son. 